This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Johanna Rickne, who is a professor of economics at the Swedish Institute for Social Research, Stockholm University, and part-time professor of economics at Nottingham University. Today we are going to talk about her paper, Sexual Harassment and Gender Inequality in the Labor Market, joined with Ole Folke, and which was published in 2022 at the Quarterly Journal of Economics. Johanna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Johanna, what is sexual harassment? Sexual harassment is unwanted sexual behavior, in this case, at work. It can also happen in other places, of course, but we study sexual harassment at work. In the definition, we also include something called gender harassment, which is based on gender. It's aggressive and unwanted behavior, and it's often included together with sexual harassment as one joint concept. So we study both of these. Obviously, sexual harassment is very bad. It has bad consequences, especially for the victim. You focus here on the consequences of sexual harassment for the way that the labor market works. Okay, so you could say I'm doing a paper on the effects of sexual harassment on mental health or something like that, you know, you are not doing that. Uh, you are looking at the effect of sexual harassment specifically in terms of the gender inequality in terms of wages. So my question here is why study that really? You know, you can think of sexual harassment as a private thing that some people unfortunately suffer, but that doesn't have structural consequences in terms of equilibrium wages. Why would you want to study the question on gender inequality and why would you think that there is an effect? So an important reason not to study sexual harassment and mental health is that there's already a lot of research on that. And it's something that we already know. Uh, sexual harassment is very detrimental for your not only your mental health, your physical health, the productivity of the group, productivity of the firm. So knowing these things, we were interested in who is sexually harassed. Are men and women sexually harassed in different types of work environments? And does sexual harassment, again, men and women contribute to this important pattern of segregation and wage inequality between workplaces, which you know, economists have focused a lot on recently. So could you tell us, you know, like a couple of sentences about what is this thing of segregation and gender inequality? So I guess that most people will know that men are more than women after controlling for many things. So, so, you know, there seems to be some type of like male gender premium there, potentially reflecting discrimination, maybe other things, I don't know. What is this thing about gender segregation? Sure. So segregation, the way we look at it in this paper happens between workplaces. So you can think of different stores in a supermarket chain, or you can think of different economics departments. Some economics departments might have usually a lot of men, but there might be other economics departments with a lot of women. And so for a person with a given occupation, uh, like a researcher, they can work often in a male-dominated or a women-dominated firm. There's variation in men and women's presence across workplaces for people who have the same occupation. And so the workplaces with a lot of men in them tend to pay larger wages, conditional on the occupation, compared to workplaces with a lot of women. 
So like women are concentrated into workplaces that pay less and men into workplaces that pay more. Why do we see that? Uh, this is where people like Claudia Golden, Larry Katz, Amanda Palais, we have various papers arguing that work conditions are very important. And specifically, women want some kind of work condition, for example, family friendliness of the firm. So they go to the women-dominated firm that offers more family-friendly work conditions, and they're willing to pay a price for it. They're willing to accept a lower wage in exchange for the work conditions they want. So women are in women-dominated firms that offer these <laughs> nice conditions in exchange for lower wage, and the men are in the higher-paying ones, and they have these non-family-friendly conditions or non-flexible conditions. So as you see, like this explanation for the segregation and wage gap talks about work conditions, but in a way related to what people want. Men and women want different things. We have preferences, sorting and compensatory wages. But in this paper, we say, what about discrimination in work conditions? Now, there can be bad work conditions based on gender that are not like compensated for. It just happens and it's discrimination that happens against men or against women in these firms that contribute to this segregation and, and inequality. And the discrimination that you are referring to would be in the form of sexual harassment. Exactly. That's, yes. that's the, you know, not discrimination in terms of I'm going to pay you less or something, but I'm going to make your life, you know, less enjoyable by sexually harassing you or, or something like that. Yeah, it could be that that could also be going on, but yeah. Yeah. So this is a paper in which you are linking the existence of sexual harassment as a phenomenon uh, that affects workplaces, maybe differentially, etc., to uh, gender inequality in the labor market. These are obviously the two things that the two concepts that appear in the title of the paper. But it is a slightly unusual type of paper in that the causal chain between sexual harassment and gender inequality is not a direct one, right? Like if you were to write it in a PowerPoint presentation, there will be a box on the left, sexual harassment, and then an arrow to another box on the middle, and then another arrow to another box little to the right, and then at the very end, gender inequality. I guess my, my question is, could you take us to the main conceptual thread of the paper that links uh, these two concepts in terms of, well, sexual harassment takes place and because of this and the other thing and the other thing and the other thing, gender inequality happens or is reinforced or whatever? So I guess the core idea is that sexual harassment targets the gender minority within a workplace. So gender minorities are harassed. That prevents people from wanting to become gender minorities. And once they do become gender minorities, it incentivizes them to shift out of that position. So that's really like how sexual harassment affects gender inequality. Like if you're a woman, you take a job in a male-dominated workplace, you're harassed, then you have an incentive to go back to, like go to a woman-dominated workplace with a lower wage. When you're talking about gender minorities are sexually harassed. Typically, I guess the, the most natural image is that it is women who are harassed, but men are also harassed with a obviously perhaps lower probability. Are men more likely to be har harassed in places in which they are the minority? 
Yes, that's exactly what we see. So harassment against men happens. It's If you look at the graph, it's a non-linear pattern. And by graph, I mean on the x-axis, we have the share of men in the workplace. And on the y-axis, we have the proportion of people who are harassed in a 12-month period in our data. So for men, that proportion is very low for like across the range of the share of men. But once the share of men is like 15% or less, it really jumps up. And in those places, which tend to be things like childcare centers or elderly care centers, these um, women-dominated occupations, often in the public sector in Sweden, that's where men are facing a lot of sexual harassment. And that's also, you know, if you read Swedish newspapers, stories about sexual harassment and testimonies from men, that's where it comes from. So let me repeat like the... The, the chain of events here, because we are, you devote different parts of the paper to the different pieces of evidence behind the chain of events. So women suffer more sexual harassment when they are the minority. Men suffer more sexual harassment when they themselves are in the minority. Mm. This means that women are unwilling to join workplaces in which they will suffer sexual harassment that happen to be the ones in which they are the gender minority. This means that if gender ratios are very unbalanced, they're going to remain unbalanced because there is no uh, force, you know, that is balancing yes. things. If the male majority workplaces on average pay more, there won't be like a flood of women joining them. Why will male majority workplaces on average pay more to start with? That's a question that lies beyond the scope of this specific paper. Where we come in is that we observe a large inequality, the one I spoke about, between workplaces. And we do observe this pattern of harassment where women are harassed in the higher paying firms and men are harassed systematically more in the lowest paying workplaces in the labor market. So yeah, I'm going to have to, you know, there's a lot of important research to be done in the future on those issues, I think. Okay, so now let me go back to the issue of why will the minorities be sexually harassed more? You already talked a little bit about the evidence. We'll go back to the evidence that you have in a second, but just conceptually, why would that happen? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you may want to sexually harass whoever it is. Why does it matter that you're in the majority or minority? We derive two arguments from the existing literature and other disciplines on sexual harassment. Uh, one is called the contact hypothesis. It argues that people, everybody, have a constant low probability to harass someone else. If conditions are wrong, I can harass someone. So if, if everybody I meet has a low but constant probability to harass and people harass mostly or nearly entirely people of the opposite sex, then mechanically, if I'm a woman, you know, the more m men I interact with, I have contact with during my, my regular workday, the larger the probability that one of them is going to harass me. And equally so for men, if they are spend their day in frequent contact with women, chances are that one of those women, just mechanically speaking, is going to harass them. So that's called the contact hypothesis from sociology and and psychology. And then another theory that exists out there and which has a lot of credibility, I think, has to do with gender norms and social in-groups and out-groups and how gender minorities are
are generally treated in workplaces because they stand out and they're very salient in the work environment. Uh, you're not necessarily treated as a professional person first. You're seen as your gender more when you're the gender minority. So why does that happen? It's because when you enter into workplace as a gender minority, you tend to break an occupational gender norm and expected occupational choice for your gender. And so people see that and people might react negatively against that. They can retaliate in different ways and behave badly against people who break gender norms. Uh, for example, like a woman carpenter, she enters the carpentry workplace and she sticks out as a woman. Her gender is very salient. So men might feel insecure in their, in their work role as this woman come in and they express like male camaraderie, try to reinsert the gender role and bolster their, their identity by behaving badly against her. Now you were mentioning that there seems to be support for these type of theories in your data. Can you briefly describe where the data comes from and what do you do with it in order to investigate this relation between the percentage of men in the workplace and the likelihood of uh, being sexually harassed? So the Swedish government collects nationally representative survey data on work conditions. So we have that data, something around 10,000 respondents going back many years in time. And we can link each respondent to administrative data for the whole population of the country. So for each person, say me, working in my research institute, we can find in our population data everybody else who works in the same workplace as me. And we can calculate the exact proportion of men and women in that workplace. So by linking this nationally representative survey data to the admin data, we can get a very precise continuous measurement of the share of men in all these respondents' workplaces. Places, and that allows us to plot descriptively portion of people who are harassed by colleagues or managers in the last 12 months by the share of men in the workplace. You were um, describing very accurately what you do. You are plotting, which is like a, the visual form of a line or a curve that links these two variables, the share of men uh, in the workplace, the likelihood that women are harassed on one hand and then the men are harassed uh, on the other hand. You said earlier that the likelihood that women are harassed is increasing. In the percentage of men, the likelihood of men are harassed is decreasing with the percentage of men. This is a correlation, however, not necessarily showing, you know, like a, a causal effect. You referred to the carpentry profession, the, the type of a profession that Uh, I had in mind as I was reading the paper was with the military. Like you would expect that the military has very few women, you know, close to 100% of men, mm. but there may be some few women working, you know, in some parts of the military. Obviously, this hypothesis that you had will predict that the likelihood that they are sexually harassed is very high. And it's, a, as I said, a, a, an occupation with a high percentage of men. However, the military may also be associated with a type of norms regarding the concept of masculinity, of how to approach social interactions, how to resolve conflict that may be very different from the typical workplace. So that would seem that there is like a, a variable there that is correlated with the percentage of men but not necessarily caused by the percentage of men because it is pre-existing and might remain there even, even if the 
percent of men went down that could be causing this uh, higher likelihood that women are harassed. Yeah, so I think there are many questions regarding measurement of sexual harassment that matters for whether or not we can be certain that this relationship is truly there in actuality. But apart from those measurement errors, I believe that descriptive research is important in terms of figuring out who is subject to this type of discrimination, even though we cannot pinpoint exactly why it's going on. We can still prevent problems without understanding in this case, I think, exactly why, uh, for example. So that's one point that I think is important. Um, and then also for the specific issue of occupation, we do um, have the control variable for occupation where we can hold constant occupation at a very fine um, grained uh, job title level. And we can for sure see that even for people with the same occupation, there is a strong uh, relationship still there uh, between the sex ratio of their workplace and the likelihood that they're going to be sexually harassed. The way that you describe, or we were mentioning earlier, the uh, causal chain of events. You know, I I imagine that we randomly threw men and women to occupations on the first day of the world. And there was some occupation in which, for whatever reason, lots of men fall in there, you know. But there is nothing necessarily different about that occupation uh, relative to other in which randomly women have fallen. There, you will think that, yes, as as women migrate into into the occupation that is initially dominated by men, uh, there is sexual harassment and then they go back or or maybe the gender norms and so on and so forth. But here, what we're discussing with respect to the military and other carpentry is a situation in which the norms are both the cause and the effect of the prevalence of men, if you want, right? I am not sure that this matters hugely for the link that I that, that you are trying to make because it is possible that even if the norms you know drastically change as women, more women arrive, it's still possible that at least mechanically from an accounting perspective, the fact that more women are benefiting from that wage premium that is associated with certain occupations might still decrease uh, gender inequality. But I'm trying to understand whether we are more or less worried that the gender norms are an unobserved in that regression. You know, even if you're controlling for lots of great things that you're controlling for. Yeah, we cannot. Well, we did for another paper collect some quantitative data on uh, gender stereotypes. So there's been various other work where people have asked, for example, children, for example, students and adults to rank occupations with respect to like who do, who usually does this occupation is it men or women, or alternatively they've used Google searches where if you Google something you get a number of pictures. You know, what's the gender of the people who appear in the pictures on Google searches? They've used data like that to create quantitative indices of, of gender norms for occupations. So we have also analyzed this data for companion papers with respect to, you know, are women harassed more in very fem feminized, like female stereotyped occupations or in male stereotyped occupations? And for sure, women are harassed more in the male stereotyped occupations and vice versa. So I think occupation, you know, is very important as well. But writing a single paper, both on the occupation dynamic and the workplace dynamic became a lot. 
And I would like to say also as a side note for the one that people might be interested, sexual harassment in this paper, we look at harassment from colleagues or managers. That's actually very different in the pattern in the labor market compared to harassment from other people that you encounter. It can be your patient. It can be your customer. It's someone who's not employed in the same workplace as you. And for that, we actually see much stronger correlations with the occupation. Meanwhile, those correlations are weaker when it comes to internal harassment within the workplace. Okay, so the second part of the study is an attempt to show that the movement of uh, workers across workplaces is potentially caused by the sexual harassment that is going on in some of those workplaces, especially if this sexual harassment, in this sexual harassment, your own group, that is your own gender, is on the receiving side rather than on the doing side. So this implies that workers should be willing to take jobs that are associated with a likelihood of sexual harassment only if they're associated with a wage premium. How do you show that? So we do a survey experiment on employed Swedish people. They received our survey. Uh, we told them it was a survey about job choices. And we did a conjoint experiment where they saw columns, job A, job B. Each column had a number of characteristics of that job, the wage being one, what types of tasks would you do? What's the flexibility of the schedule? What's the work environment? And so on. They chose which one they were most likely to accept, now which job is most attractive to you. And within those rows, we uh, randomly assigned them to see an event, a sexual harassment event taking place in a firm. And we chose here the most common forms of sexual harassment, building on other surveys that we collected in other countries. So, for example, if someone saw uh, that there had been groping, you know, a woman had been groped in, in a workplace, Or alternatively, she was told, you know, some people in this workplace think that women aren't really appropriate to hold the job. We saw a huge impact of telling people that, that sexual harassment existed within the workplace on the likelihood that people were willing to work there. So uh, the way the method works is that you benchmark that reduction in the likelihood to pick a job against the reduction in likelihood to pick a job when it pays a lower wage. So you can get, get a wage equivalent statistic on the reduction in the likelihood to pick a job, which is called the willingness to pay. So <laughs> all that being said, we found a very large willingness to pay to avoid uh, these workplaces where we told them that harassment had occurred. And importantly, uh, the key result there is like everybody dislikes those firms, but workers especially dislike a place where someone of their own gender was harassed. Men and women are both much more fine taking a job in a workplace where someone from the opposite gender was harassed. It's really your own gender. That's where you don't want to go. So I have a number of questions with respect to on this part. But before that, there is something that you mentioned along the way that uh, I found intriguing. Like you provided two illustrations of situations uh, that you put under the general umbrella of sexual harassment. One of them will be hearing that women are groped in the workplace. The second, that it has been heard that some men have expressed that women might not be suitable for this job. Now, you are putting them under the same umbrella, but mm -hmm. to me, the seriousness of these two things, without being an expert on the issue, seems pretty different, right? Like, if I had to choose, I would rather be expressed as not being suitable than groped. I mean, I would expect that 
one type of vignette has a much bigger effect on the willingness to take a job than the other. Yeah, so with all due respect, I <laughs> have kind of experienced both of those on the job. And being told as a woman economist, for example, I've been told many times, that, you know, why don't we have women in economics? Oh, but it's, it's because of the bell curve. Women aren't as intelligent as men. That's why we don't have women here. What do you think about that important explanation? And that really hurts, you know? It really makes you feel less... As a part of the profession that you dedicated your life to, more or less, it's very hurtful. And so we do include that. We do include groping and we do include people who stubbornly, persistently discuss their sex life. Those are our three vignettes. And in previous work that have evaluated consequences of those different types of behavior, like each one of those belong to a different category of sexual harassment. And they are the most common, commonly reported behavior within each of those types, those three types of harassment. So that's how we pick them. And in other studies looking at the consequences, these types of like attitudes about women, for example, the ones I mentioned, they have been shown to be equally, you know, mentally hurtful, especially as they're experienced over time compared to something like unwanted touching. Just to be clear, I was not trying to yeah, minimize yeah. No, for sure, for sure. second I, I, time. Yeah. My <laughs> argument was just that the other one sounded even worse, right? So I was just making a relative comparison rather mm -hmm. than an absolute comparison. Mm. I agree, of course, that this is terrible. But yeah, and we see that in the data, you know, the estimates are very similar. So like... Right. When we analyze them separately, it is very similar. No, no, this is fine. Right? I mean, intuitively, one of them would seem to be to be even more horrible, but it's it's fine. You are saying, in addition to this, that in the data they have similar coefficients. Right. right. They do. So, they okay. do. I guess mm. that this is. Uh, yeah. Sorry for getting personal there. No. No. <laughs> yeah. no. So the the other thing to mention was the fact that. You said that this is a survey experiment. Mm. So the words survey and experiment don't usually go to, <laughs> together, right? So because you are at the end of the day asking here hypothetical questions. Now, one thing that I thought was the, a differentiating factor of economists relative to other social sciences is that we care more about revealed preferences. You know, like if, if, if somebody doesn't actually take an action, then we take with a pinch of salt what they say. I mean, of course, I understand that there are some questions like mental health and all this for which asking people how you feel is the only way, of course. But when it comes to choosing between jobs, we tend to, you know, discount a little bit what they might, they might say. Tell me a little bit about the tradition of this type of research in economics. Yeah, so it's, it's, it is true that we look at revealed preferences, but in the case of job choice, we can't look at that because we only observe the jobs that people actually chose. So one way to look at job choices is, for example, to randomize the content of job advertisements to see who applies to jobs. For example, when you enter flexible work conditions into a job advertisement, how does that change who applies and how many people apply? And these types of survey conjoint experiments have shown to have very similar estimates in terms of people's willingness to, to like people's preference for a work condition. Like there are papers that benchmark that methodology against the advertisement methodology and found very similar effects. 
So people have tried to support, you know, if I tell you, would you like to work in this firm and this firm? It becomes too hypothetical. You're just taking a survey that doesn't really tell us anything about actual job choice behavior. But then, you know, papers that compare the two methodologies actually find very similar results for both. Let me see whether I understand it. So you're saying I am not presenting my survey participants with actual choices of firms that have more or less sexual harassment. However, I have seen some other papers in which similar survey participants have been presented with jobs that have more or less of other characteristics, let's say uh, time flexibility or something. And the choices that they are making in these responses to hypothetical questions seem more or less to coincide with the choices that people make when presented with uh, these uh, alternatives in between more or less flexibility in actual job advertisements. Therefore, I expect that if my survey participants were presented with actual choices, they will do it in the same way as they do in the same way for the time flexibility type of exercise. Yes, that's exactly correctly. Like that describes the argument I made perfectly. Uh, We have more arguments though. So one could think about social desirability bias affecting some of these traits more than others. Flexibility is not maybe controversial, but if you put sexual harassment in a potential job, people might say, oh, I really, you know, now is my time to to reject this job in a survey, whereas I wouldn't reject it in in the actual labor market. But one interesting piece of evidence from the data is that people are willing to take jobs in the workplace with the sexual harassment. Actually, the willingness to pay is nearly zero when the victim is of the opposite gender as yourself. So we don't observe that everybody, you know, reject these job profiles. Some people, both men and women, are quite okay with taking that job, even in the survey, when the victim is the opposite gender. So we have have many correlations like that in the data. We think that support, you know, there is, we can't necessarily pinpoint the exact willingness to pay, like the numerical preference, but a lot of it, like the patterns between different groups of respondents, for example, all of which should be equally affected perhaps by social desirability bias, I think provide some interesting and reliable evidence here. So is this something that is limited to gender? Because for instance, I may learn that, I don't know, men with glasses are more likely to be sexually harassed in this place. And therefore I interpret this as, okay, well, I have glasses. So that means that I'm at a risk I may avoid this workplace, or is it a situation in which men with glasses are not more or less likely to be harassed, but I, you know, have some type of solidarity with people of my own gender, even though I myself may not be a particularly high risk? Yeah, so we do ask a question also about the fictional jobs. So say, like, first you see the two fictional jobs then you choose one of them, then you see another choice and you choose several times. And then after we ask, you know, should you like imagine yourself taking a job in workplace A and we specifically ask them about a workplace where where we had a vignette about sexual harassment. And then we ask, you know, if you took the job in that firm, what do you think your own risk would be to be subject to the type of behavior that we saw happen in that workplace? And then we compare the preference uh, measurements for people who see a high own risk and people who see a low own risk. And so it's clear from that, that the willingness to pay is larger for people who see a large own risk, but it's there and 
it's, you know, it, it's still there for people who see a same sex victim, but say that there's zero risk for themselves. So that supports that some of it is at least coming from this ultra, like arguably more empathy or more altruism for people that are exposed to this from your own social in-group. And sometimes I, when I talk about this in seminars, I talk about racism because I think it's a very similar dynamic that's going on. You know, me, like as an, if I, if I were an ethnic minority, I don't want to take a job in a firm where ethnic minorities are, are being, you know, subject to racism in the firm. Even if I don't have, like, I might suspect that I would never be um, subject to racist remarks should I take a job there. I still might care more about people from my own social in-group. Meanwhile, the people from the social out-group, the non-racialized people, you know, what we find is that they're pretty fine with taking a job in that firm. So there's really a different demand from the majority and the minority in terms of doing something. You know, there's a very unequal distaste for this discrimination of the minority in our data. I'm very glad that you say that the result is there also for people that perceive that they themselves might be at zero risk. Yes. Because I thought from the paper that it was, uh, the result was there only for people who perceive that they were at low risk. And I was going to ask you, well, low risk is not zero risk. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be at low risk of something terrible happened to me, right? It's not quite the same. The other thing that comes to mind, and this leads to the discussion that we had earlier in which you told me that, you know, both your own intuition or personal experience and the results that you were mentioning was that, let's say, you know, as the comparison between two vignettes, groping and hearing that your group is not suitable for this job are, broadly speaking, equally bad. You know, the first one is personal, but the second is more group-based. If only one woman hears that women are not suitable for the job, I would expect that many other women hear the same because it's like a, a group-wide type of attitude or comment. What I mean to say is that there is some type of sexual harassment yeah. that is not individual-based by group-based. So this idea yeah. of having low risk versus moderate risk or high risk doesn't seem to be, there are no very fine distinctions between, let's say, different women in the same workplace. They will all suffer it as a block. Yeah, I mean, the, the reasons behind this difference between the majority and the minority gender when it comes to the reluctance to take a job where the own gender is being victimized is like, you know, it was very, it was something that we really tried to research. Why is that happening? You know, why are women okay with taking a job where men are harassed? but not where women are harassed. And so we did a follow-up survey as part of the revision process where we asked, you know, the altruism that you mentioned, it's, it's the in-group altruism where I care more about women's well-being because my woman myself, so I don't want to take a job in a workplace where women are generally suffering, you know, bad work condition. That is one mechanism that we do find some support for, but, you know, split sample analysis, the way I talked about it. Some other ones, we really don't find any evidence for, like the perceived harm to the victim them is not different, but aren't differentially likely to, to, to label the behavior as sexually, sexual harassment. Yeah, there were several ones that we tried to try to, to ask about, but it's, uh, yeah, we, we didn't find anything on most of those things. Let's then go to the last part of the paper. So we have seen so far that men and women suffer more se sexual harassment in the workplace in which they are a minority, that they are unwilling to join workplaces where they will suffer sexual harassment. The third thing 
the last, uh, you know, causal link to do like this complex uh, relation between having on the one hand sexual harassment and at the very end, then the inequality is that this movement of or transitions of workers across firms take place when they have been sexually harassed and specifically with a certain type of patterns. How do you study this in, in your data? So to analyze this question, we use the fact that our administrative data is a yearly individual panel for each person that responds to the National Representatives survey that I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. We can follow them each year in time in the survey data or in the admin data, both before they respond to the survey and after. That means that we can compare job change behavior for people who self-reported sexual harassment in the survey and compare them to the job transfer, like workplace transition behavior of the people who did not self-report sexual harassment. So uh, there we can see that people who self-report harassment are much more likely to change out of the workplace in the years following the survey than the people who did not report that harassment. And we also see like systematically, where do these people go? You know, we can find in the administrative data their new workplaces to say, uh, try to get at the question of whether those transitions create more segregation and more wage inequality, which seems to be the case. One type of result that you have. So the first one, as you uh, mentioned, is you are more likely to leave your workplace in the years after you have been sexually harassed. Okay. Mm. So this is fine. The, the second part, however, is that you are uh, among those who move. If you have been sexually harassed, you are more likely to move to a place, to a new type of workplace in which you are not the minority anymore, right? Like for instance, say a woman who maybe have been sexually harassed and is moving, she's not going to go to carpentry or the military. You know, she will try to go to another type of job in which she's in the majority or her gender is in the, in the majority. With respect to this second piece of evidence that is the one that establishes the link with, uh, you know, the the existence of sexual harassment and the pattern of mobility that reinforces segregation, uh, gender segregation. I was wondering whether this type of result might al already be implicit in the other things that we have seen up to this point. And, and here is, here is the, my, my analogy. So imagine, imagine that we have, again, just as, a, as an example, imagine that we have the military that has 99.9% .9 men. Okay. Now, if a woman moves out of the military, that woman has to necessarily go to a place that has a higher percentage of women than in her current occupation. Me mechanically, she cannot go to one in which men are 110 percent of you know of the of the workers. If we take the previous result that say that a woman is more likely to be harassed in the military than working in nursing or social care or, you know, other professions with them, maybe in the majority. Then it has to be that the transitions that are generated by sexual harassment have to be, have to be pushing women away from male-dominated professions and potentially likewise male away from female-dominated professions. So the fact that the transition takes place 
already has to imply that because they are caused by different percentage of men in the workplace, they have to be pushing in the favor of gender segregation. So let me see if I managed to, to answer in a good way, but we don't see a lot of impact on occupational choices. So it doesn't seem to be the case that a person changes occupation, or at least we can't detect. It might be there, but too small for us to detect, like statistically. But what happens seems to be more that like, if I'm harassed in a male-dominated research research department, I go to a more female-dominated, or like not female-dominated, but the share of men at least decreases. It's not that I go to, you know, I, some people might become sociologists or go to like a woman-dominated academic environment, but it's like people reduce their share of men. Um, for example, in finance, imagine that you're a woman in finance, you work in a very male-dominated financial institution, you might go to one that that's more gender balanced. So that's like people tend to shift workplace within their occupation as this happens. So I mean that I was using the analogy with the military occupation base, but the, the same argument applies to workplace base. So if, if you were if you were the only female in a economics department, mm. then the percentage of men in your department is almost a hundred percent other than because of you. Then you are also at high risk, mm. which means that when you move, caused by that sexual harassment, by that potential sexual harassment, you you have to go yeah. a fortiori, you know, to a place where there are more women, right? Because you Yeah, I got it now, I think. Yeah. When we compare moves between people who, like, we can look at people, just every mover, right? Even outside of the survey, we can look at every single person who moves firms in the Swedish economy every single year. So we can say, you know, given the starting point in a workplace with a certain proportion of men, do the people who suffer sexual harassment transition differently out of those, those types of workplaces, you know, with a certain share of men compared to everybody there? like all women who leave there. And we find that there's no real difference. So it's not that sexual harassment triggers a different type of move. Like all women, like you say, you know, all women who leave the military are likely to go to a more like a new workplace with less men in them. We don't see that sexually harassed people make systematically different moves than, than other people, other women who switch out of those places. But the thing is that sexual harassment triggers you to switch more. So it's like systematically, there's more, there's a greater proportion of people among these gender minorities who leave those extreme points of the distribution of the sex ratio in the workplace. So the fact that sexual harassment triggers that turnover, and it's mainly women, men are mostly, I think, stuck. We don't see as much, you know, it's hard for men. They're stuck being sexually harassed in the lowest paying workplaces in the labor market. And we see that it's actually very hard for them to, to leave those high harassment places. But for women, uh, we do see that they move downward in a similar way like other people move out of those workplaces. But the key here is that sexual harassment triggers more turnover to start out with. In terms of policy implications, I'm wondering whether there is any type of policy conclusion that we did not already know before. We have found that the wage premium is accounted by sexual harassment, but it's not as if we needed any more proof than sexual harassment is bad, right? Like, of course, not every paper has to have direct policy conclusions. But am I right in thinking that this paper has not really changed our minds about whether it is a good idea to encourage or discourage sexual harassment in societies. 
I would argue yes, and on several margins. So let me mention, for example, for employers, I think our survey experiment is actually pretty important when it comes to showing the cost of sexual harassment for the pool of job applicants that you can get. So in my experience, employers, when sexual harassment shows up in co-worker survey, for example, it's seen as an isolated case. Maybe you, you mention it in a meeting and there's not really a lot maybe done about it. What we show, like our survey shows that more than two thirds of employed Swedish workers are aware of some or many cases of sexual harassment that's happened. So this information, these small, like might seem small individual cases, word really travels out outside of the firm. And what our survey experiment shows is just that finding out about that event has a huge cost for firms in terms of restricting the number of people who are willing to work there and requiring the firm to pay more in order to attract that workforce. So I think that is something that has not been highlighted very much in terms of the incentives that employers should have to prevent harassment from happening in the first place. Wonderful. Thank you, Joanna, for coming to the program. Thank you so, so much. Please visit our website at thevisiblehand.uk for links to the other papers that we discussed, interactory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. 